I am the only person on the planet who doesn't mind my voice recorded. Oh my God, I can't stand I it. I can't stand to look at myself in images though. That's the thing. Mm. Oh, I just have a, a wall of just pictures of my nose. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Ezra Klein, Dara Lynn. <laughs> the Weeds. The Weeds, it's awesome. <laughs> um, I know, it's it's gotten way worse since Ezra came back, but, you know. I we, know, I've, I've dropped gotta... <laughs> the quality. To be honest, I enjoy listening to it less since I came back, because I already know what happened. Yeah, it's very boring to listen to yourself on a podcast. Yep. In my also, opinion. it's extremely um, humiliating. Mm. Brutal. Okay, now let's I, let's be serious. We so got sorry. we got a good white paper coming about uh, white privilege, white Some, privilege and racism, and racism. Yes, they and go it's hand weird, in hand. Weird directions. Um, but first, we we wanted to talk about the family separation drama uh, we had over the past weekend, uh, protests nationwide against Trump family separation policy. The news cycle has somewhat moved on, but is somewhat still hung up on this. Yeah, the, the news cycle has moved on. The policy fight has moved on, but in a different way. Right. And the families have not moved on. Right, right. The notably. families are stuck in total limbo. Um, but I mean, I think importantly, the the policy direction has really moved someplace else. And it's important to understand where it has moved to and for, you know, people who live in the country to understand that and like what they think about it and what might possibly uh, be done. Um, So here is where Dara has to explain things to us. (laughs) Right. Especially because uh, when we talked about this when planning this episode, the Trump administration was in a two-front litigation battle over this. They are now in a three-front litigation battle. Um, Ooh, tell me about the fronts. So so the first front is the one that the Trump administration opened up with its executive order a couple of weeks ago that was hyped as ending family separation. What it actually did was pave the way for an alternative to family separation that was detaining families for as long as it took for their cases to be processed, which when someone is putting forward an asylum claim and passes their screening interview, getting through that process is like a matter of months, sometimes longer. So, you know, when we're saying indefinite family detention, it's because the plan was to detain them for as long as that as it took to process their cases. And how long it took to process their cases was going on this extremely slow backlog okay, immigration let's, court let's, let's back this up. All right. Let's yeah, back yeah. this up. Okay. So somebody comes, they have an asylum claim. Yes. You do an initial screening. If you have credible fear, then you get a hearing. Yes. That claim can take some months to process. Yeah. and Because at this point, you're on the standard immigration court docket. Right. And so under the old Flores settlement, yep. you cannot just keep children in immigration detention for very prolonged periods of time. Right, right. So, yeah, originally that's for just children who come without their parents. In 2015, after Obama tried to expand immigration detention to families on, on a wide scale, it got amended to say, no, the problem here is what you're doing to children. If they're there with their parents, that's not really better. Right. So family separation was to say, okay, if we are not allowed to detain whole families, what we will do is we are going to prosecute the parents yes. because they are adults. And then just like any person who is being prosecuted in the United States, if you are in prison, you are separated from your families. And that was like 
Nielsen's rhetoric, blah, blah, blah. Right. So then when they say, okay, we're not going to separate the family. Right. We're going to go back to plan A. What that means is that as Obama tried to do but then was not allowed to do, we are going to detain whole family units. Right. And so the original question when they came up with that executive order was, okay, you've declared that you want to do this. This court order is still in effect. It still says, you know, the way that it was litigated was the federal government said that they could get people out in about 20 days. And the court said, OK, so 20 days is, you know, that's about that's what we'll expect you to do. So the Trump administration is saying that it wants to get this change. The executive order instructed Jeff Sessions and the DOJ to ask the exact same judge who had ruled in 2015 that the agreement applied to children who were there with their parents to kind of take that back. But it wasn't clear that that judge would agree. And so there was kind of this question of what do they do if this plan fails? Well, we now have an answer to that kind of because last week there was a court order in a different case, a more recent one filed by the ACLU, that stopped the administration from separating any more families and ordered them to reunite all of the families that had been separated within 30 days. This might sound like a very aggressive timeline. It may not sound aggressive. If you've been following the saga of just how little information parents have about their children and how many obstacles there have been to kind of locating, getting parents in touch with children, much less getting them in the same place, it does sound very aggressive. But the administration has said that they knew where all the parents were and they knew where all the children were. So that kind of made it seem like a reasonable thing for a judge to order. The administration takes that order turns around and goes back to the judge in the Flores lawsuit. And this happens Friday night and goes, so we have an order that tells us we can't separate families. We have an order that tells us we can't detain families. We're going to read the first order as superseding the second one. And we have now declared that it is okay for us to keep families together in immigration detention as long as necessary because the more recent court order did not specifically preclude that. Okay, so let me ask you some questions about this. Yes. So the key rhetorical move here that the Trump administration is making mm -hmm. is to say there are only two choices yes. that can possibly be made. There is either the choice where we do not enforce U.S. law or right. there is a choice where we detain families together um, indefinitely. Right. Well, for that, there's a third choice that, that uh, yeah, we separate. Like family them. separation, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. But either – let me put it differently. There's a choice if we do not enforce U.S. law or we right. do something unimaginably cruel to families. Yes. That's the yes. better way to put that. What are the other choices? <laughs> like what, what else could you do if a humane administration were in place and they wanted to enforce U.S. law or, or they wanted to – follow long-time precedent, something. Yeah. What, what, what are the other things that could be happening here? What, what, would a world, what would a world where we still had the flow from Central America yeah. but did not have this crisis going on, what would be happening in that world? So the government has a suite of what are called alternatives to detention that have never been quite as popular as detaining people or just bonding them out, but that kind of do provide intermediate levels of contact, security to make sure that people aren't sneaking off into the interior. The obvious answer to this is ankle bracelets. And I have seen people raising this question. I have raised this question. I have not gotten great answers as to why the obvious answer to this is not just to let everybody out with ankle bracelets. I've heard like very technical 
quibbles about the particular ankle monitors that DHS has. That, like, they're not very good ankle monitors, but that doesn't seem like something that can't be answered with buying new ankle monitors, yeah, I mean, which seems less expensive at some point is, than detaining people. Is it the answer that it wouldn't create an incredibly cruel, scary visual and such, and as such act as a deterrent to others? Uh, that... That may be the answer. I haven't had anybody tell me that explicitly, sure. but at a, at a certain at a certain point, you know, if there are no actual answers that appear to be forthcoming, that might be the, the other things that they could do are kind of case management systems. One of which was specifically designed for families, and that they ended in 2017, which had a pretty darn good rate of getting people to show up to court. Now, this was a pretty small scale thing. We're only talking about like a few hundred families, so probably you're going to be selecting the families that are particularly unlikely to try to not show up to their court dates for that. But it did have like a 90 plus rate of getting people to show up. They killed it because it was not at, it was not any more effective than other things they could be doing. But it's not as if they don't have kind of a broad array of tools available. If their actual concern was in the end point of people not showing up to court rather than the shame of engaging in the practice of catch and release. Well, one other question about this. So in the status quo ex ante, where, where we were, say, in much of the Obama administration or where we, we might have been in another administration, as I understand it, a lot of folks were coming in looking for asylum between ports of entry. Mm-hmm. We were saying, all right, we're going to give you a court date. But we're going to let you go into the country for now. What the Trump administration is saying is that was basically a huge inflow of illegal immigration because mm-hmm. people never showed up. Do we actually have numbers on what percentage of people did not show up? Yeah, kind of. The Executive Office of Immigration Review, which runs immigration courts, actually does have good numbers, but they're good numbers that compare one point in the process to the next point in the process. So we like have okay numbers tracking people through, but it definitely is the case that a relatively small, like something like 15% of people who come in through credible fear interviews, they would otherwise be deported and instead they pass their credible fear screening. Like only 15% of them ultimately were getting their asylum claims approved. Now, how much of that is they missed their court dates? How much of that is they, in addition to having court dates, were also supposed to file an actual paper application for asylum and maybe they didn't know to do that? Uh, Like actually a great number of people don't fill out the paper asylum application and the Trump administration treats that as, yeah, see, the reason they weren't doing that is they didn't have real asylum claims, but maybe people just don't know. Like, there's a lot of kind of attrition through the process. We do have very suggestive qualitative evidence that at least in some cases, families that are trying to follow the court process and keep abreast of it are missing their court dates and getting ordered deported in absentia just because they didn't have the information available or weren't able to, like, get the court location moved to actually where they were living. But we don't have a great sense of how much of this problem is a problem of people who are taking advantage of the system versus the administration doesn't have the resources or inclination to adopt an aggressive case management position of we know everyone is trying to go through the system the right way. We're here to help you do that. But the the ankle bracelets data is pretty clear like that. That worked well, right? Right. And, uh, right. Yeah, th- yeah. Things things that are more aggressive than just bonding people out tend to work okay. The other kind of problem here, ideologically, is it it's not necessarily just cruelty. There's a certain deterrent argument of the people who are most likely to take advantage of the system, the thing that is going to be most suggestive to them is knowing that they cannot take advantage of the system. So like, yeah, you can 
try to break off your ankle bracelet if you really wanted to do that. You cannot break out of detention. You know, there's a there's a cost benefit issue mm-hmm. here, right? So like Vox's story, uh, Alexia Fernandez-Campbell wrote it. And she says, you know, they had a 99.6% compliance rate right. with court appearances with the sort of intensive ankle monitor system. And it's it's drastically cheaper than yes. keeping people incarcerated. Yes. Um, that it is said, more expensive than doing nothing. <laughs> right. That said, 99.6, though it is a high number, it is a lower number than 100. And a conceptual question here is like, how bad is illegal immigration, right? And I think a lot of the Trump administration's rhetoric and a lot of popular feeling around this, right? I mean, like Trump, he he says really interesting, you know, verbal formulas, right? Where it's like, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country, right? And, you know, it is a, a strong claim that like, imperfection in immigration enforcement is like an existential threat to the nation. Whereas, you know, me, like I'm I'm reading this article about the ankle monitors and I'm thinking, well, if you can get 99.6% compliance with much less cruelty at a fraction of the financial cost, like that's a no-brainer, right? Like people shouldn't steal cars. It's bad that we have car thieves in America, but like also I don't know, like it happens and like I've never seen someone come up with a reasonable, like a plausible I, I just, way to eliminate this. But I mean, I, I do think that it's a it's a tough one though because like I have never seen in, in sort of years of watching arguments around immigration and, and border security, I see sort of radical, you know, like like no person is illegal kind of stuff and then I see kind of – defensiveness and and there's not a lot of willingness to say that like this is like every other situation in law where like some people are going to get away with it and like we should try to like we should try to reduce the number of people who get away with it but like also it like it's okay I agree with this but I I I think we're being a little too credulous on the rhetoric here would be my my concern so I don't think that the problem for the Trump administration, I don't buy that it's the 99.6 versus the 100. Yeah, that's not. It's I not. think that – and I think it's been reasonably clear in things they've said and things John Kelly have said that the detention plan is not so much about the people here and does every single one of the people here – stay in detention until a U.S. court fully goes through the process with them and decides whether they should be here or not. It is about how many people come. I think that the ankle bracelet problem is not about the 99.6. It's that if you have a credible fear that you're going to be killed in Honduras and you come here with your family and the worst you think will happen is at least for a while you will live in the U.S. wearing an ankle bracelet and then maybe you know, you'll end up deported and you'll be back in the same situation you were already in, which would be bad. But at least you had you know, maybe four months, maybe three months, maybe six months of safety um, and maybe things are better back where you came from at the end of it. If the view is that it's not about the 99.6 percent, it's about the, 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 the flow that comes after that. It's about whether or not next year there are – 70,000 or 50,000 or what they want to get back to, which is, I guess, 4,000 that they had one year, right? Something like that. Well, yeah, it was not quite that few. But yeah, they, they were down pretty low last they year. They got pretty low. And, and and so I just think that there is a lot in the 
penal system that is not actually about efficacy but is about deterrence. Um, there's a lot about the way we punish wrongdoing that is not about what is the absolute best way to catch everyone but what is the best way to send a signal to other people that you really don't want to be caught. Now, whether or not that works is an open question. There's a lot of debate in criminal justice spaces about that. But I do think we, we need to see this policy for what it is, which is for the Trump administration. I think it was interesting. Everybody thought it was so weird that the Trump administration brought out these photographs of children in detention centers trying to calm everyone down. And everybody looked at these photos and said, you, you were keeping children in cages. How could you possibly think this would calm us down? And I think that if you want to take the Trump administration is strategic and not just ridiculous and heartless view of it, they knew it wouldn't calm anyone down. What they thought would happen was it pictures of children separated from families in cages would make their way around the world and people who might come here would decide not to come here. Now, I don't know if they were going that far on that. That might have just been a huge PR mistake. But I do think it's the right way to think about the overall policy. The, the overall policy is its success is measured on other people not coming and becoming part of the process at all. So while I do think that the decision to like let to put out information about the places people were being held in was because they were under a great deal of pressure for not letting any access in. And like that was the worst possible scenario of fears, especially because you have to remember family separation didn't become a national outrage when it started. Family separation became a national outrage after this unrelated story about the Office of Refugee Resettlement not being able to contact kids came out. And so the administration's response was often, no, really, we have the kids, they're safe. So I think that's important. But generally, I think you're correct. But that runs into the problem that, legally speaking, you're not allowed to treat asylum seekers based on deterrence, which gets us to the third uh, front in the litigation battle, which opened up last night, when, again, in a longer-standing case, a judge filed a preliminary order that says that the Trump administration cannot categorically keep asylum seekers in detention, that once they pass their credible fear interview, there has to be an individualized determination that they really have to, that particular asylum seeker really does have to be detained because otherwise they're going to be a flight risk. So while that is a discretionary process, and so you can definitely imagine the administration being more stringent in that process than maybe another administration would be, right now they are absolutely out of options in terms of abiding by court orders, being okay with there not being any congressional action and still doing what they want to do because they just said, okay, widespread family detention is the rule. Now they can't do it in every case. They have to make an individualized determination. They've already given up on the idea of family separation or like at least they've made it clear that's not their first choice because it never was. And so their only remaining options are to kind of go in the direction that congressional Republicans have been pushing for a while, which is less the ankle monitors, case management, alternative ways to keep track of people, but getting a process in place that gets them through the asylum process in a very quick amount of time, like hiring tons of judges, hiring tons of asylum officers, getting everybody in and out in two weeks. And that is a problem for due process, maybe, it also doesn't raise some of these kind of cruelty concerns. It also runs into the fact that Donald Trump appears to have this weird hangup about hiring more immigration judges. Right. So Trump has like tweeted several times that like we shouldn't be hiring more judges. We should just be turning people around. 
and and yes. like summarily deporting them, right? Which is say Trump basically does not think that the asylum system should exist. That that's a reasonable way to interpret that statement. And you know, I have to say, I I've been following this in in Europe for a while, and this is the kind of thing where. I think it's an example of like Trump by not like coming up through the political system, yeah. like speaks for a, a common sense view yes. that like is not often explicitly debated in a, in a clear way. But so it's like an like a feature of the way asylum law works, right, is that a person who absolutely would not be allowed to immigrate to a given country – Right. Like if there, there's no way you are yeah. there in Honduras and there is no possibility of you being allowed to come to the United States. You can't come to the embassy. Right. Like you can't apply any place. But if you uh, mis- mysteriously arrive via teleportation in Indianapolis, you have very different legal rights yes. than if you were just knocking on the door of the consulate. Right. Well, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You don't. So it's like you become present. Yeah. And you say, "Aha! I need asylum," and you obtain various due process rights. That if you are standing there outside the U.S. embassy in Honduras saying, "Hey, hey, hey! I need asylum," you don't have. And so, since of course people can't teleport directly into Indianapolis, this creates a very powerful incentive for people to hire smugglers to take them through Mexico, to cross the Mediterranean Sea on unsafe watercraft, right? It's, it is it is not just a case of like if you attempt to do this in like a safe, organized way, like just like show up at a government office in your home country and be like, hey, man, I need some help. Like you, you've got nothing, right? You have no chance. But if you break the rules, basically, and arrive without authorization, if you successfully arrive in the physical country, that's the only way you can make this claim. And that generates a lot of very dangerous, somewhat perverse, like, movement of human beings around the planet. And, like, it it legitimately does not seem great to me. Like, I, I take a much more welcoming view of the idea that people want to immigrate to the United States than Donald Trump does. But, like, as a possible way that a person could be allowed to immigrate, it's like it's, – this it seems really bad. I mean, I just – to point out, it's not like no one is thinking about what is a safe and effective way to get people there to claim asylum. That's literally the purpose of the Central American caravan that kind of started this panic on Donald Trump's part to begin with was an NGO saying, instead of everybody paying smugglers, we're going to take a bunch of people through. There will be safety in numbers. We'll go to a port of entry so we're not even breaking U.S. law. And the political freakout was so much more than it was when people were just going underground in smugglers groups of 20 to 30 people. Yeah, I mean, what I would say about that is that – and I so rarely accuse you of being too generous to the Trump administration's arguments. That is like such not my criticism. <sighs> but um, I think you're right. Like you're completely right that Donald Trump speaks for an authentic view. But I don't think it's that view. I think it's a view that there probably shouldn't be an asylum system. Not like this. Like not that he's worried about the movement of people issues and and that it should be done in a different way and maybe there should be some consulate process over there that is more stringent. Just that people just shouldn't be coming over here. I mean I think he's got an instinctive view that when he says a country either has borders or it doesn't, 
The reason the metaphor for him of the wall is so powerful, and eventually, like, people push him, he's like, oh, maybe it'll have one door and it'll be yeah. a big, beautiful door, but you don't go through a wall. Right. Sure. I, I think Donald right, like Trump. He's I think if you, you like, can't literally shut the border down. If you shot Donald Trump full of like metaphorical sodium pentothal and like asked him what he thought, he'd say, "We have enough people here. We have enough people from other countries here." It's just like as he said about Muslim travel. Let's just put a total and complete stop to it for a while. And I think that's where he is. And I actually think a number of people are there. I think you're very much right about that. But I don't think there's a version, like a safer, more kind of internally coherent version of the asylum system. I think what he doesn't like is the idea that all these people can ask for asylum and be treated so seriously by the U.S., no matter how it happened. I mean, this is also where it's relevant to point out that the Trump administration, after having set a cap for refugees who have to be vetted through a very stringent process before they come into the U.S. that is lower than any cap in recent history, is on pace to maybe hit 50 percent of that cap. Like, we're on pace to admit something like 25,000 refugees down from over 70,000 over the last several years. So it's it's not exactly like the legal process is the concern here. No, no, no. Look, I, I agree. Look, if we're debating Donald Trump, then the fact yeah. that Donald Trump <laughs> right, keeps proposing fair a enough. 50 percent cut in legal immigration establishes what Donald Trump's view is. But I'm just saying beyond that, like in the global immigration context, right? Something we've talked about before, what we did at live shows, we we talked about uh, immigration to Canada, right? Right. Where Mm -hmm. they are not having this anti-immigrant backlash, even though they have a higher foreign-born population share. And so like one hypothesis about Canada is it's the better skill mix of the legal immigrants to Canada that, that makes the population more optimistic. A view that I think is more plausible is that it's because Canada is way up on top of the United States of America, right? Canada does not have a border control problem, right? Like it is just so hard to arrive at Canada by boat from a chaotic third world country that almost nobody does it. And they don't have this kind of concern, right? Which is why you're seeing this massive domestic debate in Canada, because for the first time, people are seeking asylum from the U.S. And it's causing Canadian progressives to go, well, maybe we shouldn't be treating the U.S. as a safe third country if people are seeking asylum yes, from right. there. And, and for the first time, though, right, when you suddenly have people irregularly arriving at the Canadian border and making requests, it's in small numbers, you know, compared to what's happening in Italy or what happened in Greece a, a couple of years ago or what's happening in the U.S. and the southern border, that produces a very different kind of anxiety in a lot yes. of people than a process that they feel they have control over, right? right? And, like, I favor, like, a much more generous policy toward immigrants and immigration than Donald Trump does. But I share some of the instinct of, I think, many people that, like, there ought to be a process with clear criteria in which one's materialization inside the land border of the United States does not just, like, per se create lots of benefits. And you you really, really, really see this in Europe where you have a question of the very lengthy Mediterranean coastlines and the special obligations that accrue to the country that you happen to have 
shown up in. Yeah. And so you have like a boat that's full of people and they might die unless the boat is able to come ashore. And now the Italian government really doesn't want to let the boat come right. ashore because if the people come ashore, you like have to let them stay while their claims get processed. So you're going to leave them out there to die. So then the Spanish government is like, no, no, no. They have like a new center left government. They say, okay, we'll let the boat land here because they're trying to show we're center-left, we're progressive, we're nice people. Uh, but that starts directing the flow of boats toward Spain. And like now in Spain, people are worried that their infrastructure for processing asylum claimants is going to be overwhelmed. And there's like a race to the bottom among different Mediterranean countries to not be the place where the asylum seekers show up. And like Europe should take some people from Africa and the Middle East and the political determination over how many people they, you know, should take, like that's, that there's a lot of internal European issues. But like the system shouldn't be that whichever country adopts the most humane treatment is like immediately swamped and suffers drastic domestic political backlash. So this seems to me like a good bridge to the congressional pile yeah. up right now because if we're – you're right. There are all these strange issues within the American immigration system that, that for years we've been trying to fix. And and I think, again, if to, to try to be generous to, to some of the versions of Trumpism here, what he often said was that he was going to take the immigration system at its word, not paper over its flaws, let these crises develop and use that as leverage to get things fixed, get rid of – Barack Obama's Dream Act deferral stuff, um, you know, so that now there's a dreamer crisis and he'd mm -hmm. use that as leverage. The separation crisis, he is on and off used as leverage. And yet the using leverage on Congress to try to solve the problem, uh, my impression, Dara, is oh, that it's Congress. not working super well. Right. The administration uh, does not appear to have learned that Congress is not who actually feels the pressure when they do things like this, right? Like there actually was the one exception to this was when they were separating families, it did look like Congress felt that they had a certain obligation to take care of that. The problem is they are now – Congress is so backed up on crises the Trump administration has asked them to fix on immigration that like – the obvious answer is, OK, we're going to roll this most recent crisis, our solution to the most recent crisis, into the solution we've had building to the last several crises. So at this point, you know, the reason that the most recent House debate on immigration failed was that they tried to add some stuff that would have uh, allowed to end family separation by condoning indefinite family detention into a bill that was already overhauling legal immigration, providing a path to legalization for DACA recipients, doing a lot of other stuff on asylum. You know, they they stumbled into a comprehensive bill because the Trump administration has asked them to deal with so many things and has refused on so many occasions to prioritize it all. So there's kind of now a little bit more attention, especially I think in the Senate, to Let's treat the border crisis as a separate crisis and figure out what the solution to that crisis looks like. A lot of those solutions come from Republicans from 2014 when they proposed largely the same stuff, the kind of let's hire a bunch of people so that everyone can get their claims processed in two weeks and get sent back. But you know, there's now that it's become a bipartisan issue, there are debates between Democrats who don't really want to condone indefinite detention and who are concerned about due process and Republicans who are a little bit caught between what they think are a wide range of 
good alternatives to indefinite detention or family separation, and the fact that the administration won't condone any of those. So, you know, you can easily see a world where John Cornyn and Dianne Feinstein agree to some kind of mix of ankle bracelets and hiring more people and getting everybody through the system faster. But until the administration accepts that they don't get to both create a crisis and dictate the outcomes of that crisis. They either like turn up the heat on Congress and then accept whatever Congress figures out to come out of it, or they play the slow game and block any alternative and wait for Congress to slowly be okay with the particular thing they want. They're not going to get anything at all because Congress doesn't see doing nothing as a massive problem for them, not nearly as bad as, as voting for the wrong bill. So Tara Gulshan uh, had a great piece on the failure of the House bills. Yes. And one of the things that I thought was striking about that piece is that there's one version of this you could imagine, which is that congressional Republicans come together on a bill that they try to jam Democrats on mm-hmm. and force Democrats to filibuster it in the Senate. Yes. Um, that's not working out. That 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 was the plan, right? That's like what they're trying to say the plan was, or even trying to blame Democrats for not for not passing the bill. But the bill lost a hundred and twelve Republican votes, um, if I'm remembering the number right. Yeah, that's it's, a, it's been epic. That's a total fucking disaster. Yes, and it's um, it's worth remembering that the only other immigration bill to fail this badly recently was the last bill that Donald Trump endorsed in the Senate. <laughs> and meanwhile, Donald Trump tweeted. In all capital letters, so you knew it was him, like the, the, the Congress had to pass this bill. Right. And then a couple days later, like he and Sarah Sanders said, said he never supported that he supported. never supported right. it and never tried to lobby Congress for it. I mean, I don't even understand. Maybe, maybe that subplot doesn't matter, but it's so bizarre. Like, the, I think the subplot matters a great deal, right? Because Donald Trump, like, I think that we've learned when the bill failed that congressional Republicans had been saying we won't vote for a bill unless we know the president has our backs. They figured out over the course of that process that there was no assurance the president could give them that would reassure that he would actually have their backs instead of turning against them. And then he proved them right. I mean, this is though this is the fundamental like um, alarming thing about the Trump administration is that. Trump era politics at the moment is like it's very dominated by this like sort of fake border crisis situation where like the issue that Trump was initially trying to resolve with zero tolerance was just like not that big of a problem. You know what I mean? Like if you were living yeah, life it, it in America. Was, it was a problem. It was not a, it was a problem in the sense that there that it was a policy problem. It was not a problem in the like as a security problem. Wait, I just mean like a normal person living their life the day before zero tolerance was announced. Like if you weren't reading the news, like it was fine. America was fine. Um and Trump as a political stunt, right? It's arguably beneficial to Trump to just have everybody spun up about immigration all the time. Like this is a, an issue that, you know, kind of works for him on on some level. Um, he's not very successful at like delivering a policy outcome that he favors or that resolves the crisis. But the underlying crisis itself is like not that big of a deal. The politics of being in immigration crisis mode are like okay for Donald Trump. But this is like the same team that is going to have to deal with anything else that happens. And like they're not skilled at 
at dealing with things. Like as you were saying, Dara, it's like they don't even seem to understand the like the fundamental tension between if you want to make Congress act, then you have to say, I'm going to back whatever you guys come up with. And if you want to be hyper specific about the only thing you will accept, you have to accept that like Congress just by default usually doesn't do anything. Right. Right. So like if the president is getting really fussy and particular about what Congress does, Congress really isn't going to do anything. And I feel like we've and had like, this exact conversation like in January and then again in March. And like I don't know when they learn this. Yeah. I mean, I just it just seems to me that in immigration, it's like they don't they don't care. Yeah. So yeah. they're not learning like it's fine. But like this exact same group of people needs to govern the country like all the time and on all the topics. Well, right. And it's worth about the, pointing the out Trump that on September 30th, when, you know, funding for the year runs out, Donald Trump has said on multiple occasions that this time he really will shut down the government if they don't give him funding for his wall. So like if they don't figure out that their fussiness on immigration is going to interact with Congress's desire to not do anything, at some point over the summer, we really are going to be facing a massive governance failure well, over this. May, maybe yes, maybe no. I, I don't even know if it's reasonable to take Trump's word at that, although it very well might be. But but the one thing I would say is that – and this goes back, I think, to Matt's point that Donald Trump often speaks quite authentically for the way a lot of people actually engage with politics. Like if, In the political science literature – they distinguish transactional politics, which is to say the solving of policy problems where you get a little bit and I get a little bit from symbolic politics, mm-hmm. where you are, are, are simply stating what kind of person you are, what you believe. You are saying things about your group and the world as you want it to be. When you're trying to solve a problem, compromise often makes sense. Um, transactional politics is a politics of compromise. Symbolic politics is not a politics of compromise. It's a it's a politics of stating who you are right. at any given a politics moment. Of expression. A politics of expression. Donald Trump, I think, is a pretty pure symbolic political player. He's so good at it rhetorically because it is so authentic to him. Other politicians who come up the ranks over time, like you're a senator for a long time, you're a governor, you have a lot of training in transactional politics, even if you often pretend to be a, a symbolic politician. And then there are a couple people who stay more on the on the edge of symbolic politics, say a Ted Cruz or a Mike Lee, but even they have spent a lot of time in legislature now. And so, you know, they at least have the other skill too, uh, to some degree or another. But Donald Trump, I, I think we really underestimate the degree to on the things he cares about, how much he just doesn't. Um, and that's why he ends up um, saying no to deals. It seemed like the deals he would have supported and because he didn't care about the transactional politics. He didn't actually care that much about the problem. What he wants to do is express who he is on the problem, who is on his side on the problem and show who is on the other side on the problem and sort of draw that line again and again and again and again. And that's the way in which it works for him. I don't know if it's a good political strategy or a bad one. I actually tend to think it's a bad one. But but it is a consistent one. And the thing about actually coming to a deal that I think is so important to remember about this is it a deal would take a lot of symbolic politics away from Trump. Instead of being on the other side of the immigration system, hating it, it would now be his immigration system. Right. And I am on some level not sure Donald Trump ever wants that to be true. Right. And, and I think the other open question there is whether by virtue of him being the president, it's going to become true without him realizing it. But I think this brings us pretty easily to our white paper for the week. So we should take a break. All right. Let's do it. 
home alarm is great. Everybody needs one. There's a lot of places you can go to get them. But what I really love about Simply Safe is that these are people who obsess over the details. Like a small example, you know, a typical glass break sensor sometimes gets fooled. There's a false positive. It sounds like a dropped plates, a baby crying. There's like, you know, weird noises can set one off. Simply Safe didn't want to settle for typical because really good home security should be really accurate. So they built a whole facility to test glass breaks. They went over 10,000 live simulations of breaking glass. That let them refine their detection technology till it was so accurate that it can distinguish a broken plate from a breaking window. Uh, that's the level of detail that Simply Safe puts into everything they do, and it really sets them apart from other security companies. The system's designed so you never notice it, never have to think about it. It's that easy. It's that intuitive. And there's no contract. They work hard to earn your business. They give you 24-7 monitoring with police and fire dispatch. It's just $15 a month. You're not locked into any long-term deals. It's the best around-the-clock protection that you can find. To protect your home today, visit simplysafe.com. That's S I M P L I S A F E.com slash weeds. That's simplysafe.com slash weeds. Simplysafe.com slash weeds. I personally am obsessed with the new Vox show on Netflix. It's called Explained. Each episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one really important topic. Sometimes, frankly, it's more fun topics. And this week, that topic is esports. It's a really cool new cultural phenomenon. The episode explores, like, what makes esports different? How did it become such a big deal? Uh, you get the whole history of esports, the turning points between arcade play, and the emergence of sort of modern esports. Uh, the episode features Thresh, who is like the Michael Jordan of esports, a huge star in that world. You got to check it out. It's really good. There's a lot of other great episodes out there that you can all find if you go to netflix.com slash explained or you just search for Vox on Netflix. It's a fantastic show. I know Weeds fans are going to love it. Style. Some of us have it. Some people don't. I'm probably in that latter camp. But just because you're not like a naturally super stylish person doesn't mean it's not impossible to attain. There's no time like the present to discover that style you never knew you had. And you can with a little help from our friends at Stitch Fix. They understand that life gets busy and that not everybody has like a passion for shopping. You tell them your sizes, your favorite type of clothes, how much you want to spend, and your personal stylist will pick out clothing for you based on your preferences. Here's how it works. You answer some basic questions about your size, what kinds of stuff you like, and your budget. You do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone. Uh, you can even do it on your tablet. Then a personal stylist comes and hand selects five brand new clothing items just for you. Uh, it sounds like an incredibly expensive service, but it's actually only $20, and it's applied as a credit to anything you keep. So then using your preferences, your personal stylist picks clothes, sends them to you, you try them on, and if you like it, you keep it and you pay for it. If you don't like it or it doesn't fit, you just send it back. Shipping is free both ways. You only pay for what you keep. Your stylist, they try to do a really good job and get you stuff you like because the only way Stitch Fix makes any money is if you love the stuff they select for you. So it's great. The incentives perfectly aligned. If you hurry to stitchfix.com slash weeds, you can get started right now. If you keep all five items in your box, you've got 25 percent off your entire purchase. That's stitchfix.com slash weeds, stitchfix.com slash weeds. So we've also got a, a white paper I'm super excited about. It's about the way when you remind white people about white privilege, instead of reducing uh, measures of what Tilsonites call modern racism, it actually increases it. It is called Racial Attitudes in Response to Thoughts of White Privilege. It's by Nyla Bransko, Michael Schmidt, and Kristen Schiffauer. And here's what they do. They gathered a bunch of white folks and they put them into a couple different groups and then they primed them. 
In some groups, they were primed to think about white privilege, to think about the ways in which being white might have helped them along in their lives compared to somebody who is not white. In some groups, they actually told them to think about white disadvantages. What are ways in which being white might have made you not actually uh, as well off? And in another, they just said, hey, just think about your life. <laughs> just think about what's happened to you as a person. And the idea was to see what these different uh, treatments would do when you then gave folks a test on what – and I want to be careful in how I describe this – in what social scientists call measures of modern racism. I don't love the way social scientists talk about this. I would call it something like racial conservatism. Sometimes you use racial resentment. But, but the idea is that there is an old form of racism, which is black people are inferior to white people. And modern racism expresses itself through ideas like there is no discrimination in society. The economic condition of all African-American people is their fault. It has nothing to do with broader institutional discrimination. So whatever you want to call that, that's what they're testing here. Anyway, what they find is that if you get white Americans primed to think about white privilege, they end up on average expressing higher levels of this racial conservatism, modern racism index, they become more likely to say, no, no, what is going on with African-Americans is that there is no discrimination in society and they're just making bad decisions. It goes up by about 10 percent on the scale, which is a significant amount. It's statistically significant, et cetera. And, and the explanation for this, which they offer, is that Basically, if you encourage whites to think about their privilege, it might evoke an identity threat for doing so because it, it places their deservingness in question. So then the brain creates a kind of counter response. No, no, it's not white privilege. It's actually you know the, the way society works or, 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 or the way different groups are. Um, they then do a secondary test where they try to see, well, in which white people does this act? And what they find is that there are ways of testing how much white identity somebody actually has. So how much they think about themselves as a white person, how they feel about that identity as a white person. And it is the people with stronger white identities who have a very strong backlash effect to being told to think about white privilege. People with low white identities – Actually, getting them to think about white privilege lowers their racism index, their, their, their racial resentment index. So now you end in a place here that I think puts a lot of fights over ideas like privilege into perspective, which is that if you're, say, dealing with a bunch of kids on a college campus who maybe their white identity is not very strong, they're sort of liberal, it actually is a good thing to talk to them about privilege. It really will make them think harder about society and make them um, less racially resentful. But if you're dealing with folks who have a very high level of white identity, reminding them of privilege tends to increase their level of racial resentment. And I just think – I think this is interesting. So something that I want to, to make sure that we understand uh, as we go into a discussion of this is that this is a paper from 2006. Yes. Uh, so this is a finding that like we have seen new studies build on. There are studies about you know when you prime people to think about white people becoming a minority. You know, yep. th this is kind of foundational to all of that. But the other kind of condition here is that we're talking, as we are in a lot of study, social science studies, about experiments done on undergrads. And I don't think that that makes it wrong. I would love to see how this looks for both younger and older people because I think that taking a bunch of people who have been in the world for a couple of decades and probably have their worldviews moderately set or think they do but also haven't had some of the life experiences that might push people kind of experientially to reconsider their ideology. Like I would be interested to know if this 
actually looks the same with 40-year-olds as it does with 20-year-olds. And I think that at the moment when, yeah, a lot of the kind of cultural momentum with the alt-right is in young white people who are very racially conscious and very invested in this worldview, but the political momentum is the fact that most Trump supporters are older white people. They are not the, you know, Milo yes. is not the reason that Donald Trump won. Uh, it's that, I think that that's worth considering. But what I really want to know, Ezra, is like in in the second experiment when they're asking people to talk about how much they identify with, with whiteness, statements like, I feel good about being white, being white just feels natural to me. It seems to me that that is itself kind of priming people to think of themselves as white. And so I wonder... How do you, like, do an end run around that dynamic, right? Like, what does this look like in a world where people aren't being reminded that they're white? And is that maybe the solution to this? So the first study doesn't do that. Right. But So, and interestingly to that, um, the first study, so there are two studies, one in which it has this white identification index and one in which it doesn't. And I thought this was interesting. They did not make a big deal out of this in the paper. But the first study where it did not have that white identification index had twice as large an effect from being reminded oh, that about is privilege. A big deal. Yeah. Um, both effects were statistically significant and both pointed in the same direction. So it's very likely that it's all within a range. It is reasonable. Yeah. But but the first study where you did not have the white right. identification index, you had a, a bigger effect just between the 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 think about privilege condition and the think about your life experience condition. I mean, you know, I, I think this is really important. I was I was reading over over the weekend a piece um, that that Kate Mann wrote. Now it must be a, a couple of years ago during during the primary. Kate Mann is the the author of a, a newish book uh, called Down Girl: The Logic of Misogyny, which is really good. But I was reading a piece that she wrote about the uh, the Bernie Sanders Hillary Clinton primary, in which she was saying why she had could no longer support Bernie Sanders or, or tolerate him. And, and her basic point was that like in Bernie's rhetoric, that even though Bernie w- had a solid 100% pro-choice voting record, had a good voting record on racial issues, the way he rhetorically framed American politics, he never asked non-elite white men to give up anything. Right, that his construction of politics is all about billionaires and plutocrats. And again, she would keep conceding, like, please do not email me, Bernie Sanders fans. Like, she kept conceding right up front, like, he had a solid gold voting record on feminist issues, but he never would, like, ask normal men to consider their privileged position in life and the need to exceed power. And that's a you know, was it like a powerful critique of Bernie Sanders and his political philosophy? But I also, to me, that's like one of the best pieces of evidence for the Bernie would have won thesis that like he developed a a rhetoric of politics that says the overwhelming majority of people will benefit from the Bernie Sanders agenda, that the only people who lose out under the Bernie Sanders agenda are a handful of plutocrats versus you have Hillary Clinton out there saying like, we need to talk about systematic racism in this country, right? You're telling people about white privilege. You're saying to what's like 65% of the public and upwards of 70% of the electorate, like you are going to lose out under my politics. Your privileges are going to go away. And like, that's a much... 
that's that's like not a good political message. So I want to add just... one thing. I want to add one thing to this, which I think is important. So I, I was reading this because I'm doing a lot of I'm reading into how identity works, how different kinds of racial identities work and interact in, in politics. There's a political scientist at Duke named Ashley. I'm sorry, I do not know how to say her last name. Hardina or Jardina. She's doing wonderful work on on on, on whiteness in, in American politics. And, and what she's doing is uh, – and she's got a great uh, dissertation that you can read online on this. What she basically says is that for a long time in social science, whiteness was treated as not an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, it was believed that because whites were dominant, because um, that they, they weren't threatened, that basically when you looked into it, whites did not operate as an identity group in the way that say African-Americans did or Hispanics did or Jewish people did or whatever it might be. But that that has begun changing, um, that as uh, the demographics of the country change, as a majority minority America comes closer and something I think is really important that I've only recently learned, while the demographics say we're going to have a majority minority America in 2045, if you ask people, they think we already do. So – and perceptually, that's actually probably more important than when we actually do. So people already think that's true. And what her research really shows is that as this threat is felt – and it's felt in a lot of different ways, both explicit and implicit, subtle and, and not subtle. I mean it's felt by seeing an African-American president occupy the White House for eight years. It's felt by seeing a huge amount of representation change on in, in popular culture. And it's also felt in being told consistently to think about your white privilege, You know that, that you're maybe part of the problem, that you have to give something up, that that activates white identity. So if you take the, the results of a paper like this seriously and, and you say, OK, I agree, let's say, that people who have a more activated white identity are going to react in a more defensive way to being talked to about privilege and talked to about you know, the ways in which whiteness has, has acted as a dominating and, and domineering force in American life. And then you say that we're in a period in which the underlying structure of America is such that white identity is going to become more, at more and more and more activated with every passing year. And I think looking at Donald Trump, you can see how that's working. I, I think you see some colli- some real collision, not just happening, but also coming. Because on the one hand, as as traditionally marginalized groups get stronger and are able to say and be heard saying, "Hey, look, like we've been screwed over for a very long time. Um, there really has been a white privilege that's operated in this country." But at the exact moment that they're getting strong enough to really make that a, a topic of discussion, whites are feeling less privileged than ever and more white than ever and more under threat than ever. And like that's a, a recipe for societal uh, discord and fracture. Yeah, I mean, I'm honestly coming out of this conversation wondering if we like and this is not the first time I've thought this, that the answer is we just need to divorce politics from the culture war because it like this is going to be a hard conversation no matter what the context is. It really sucks to be someone who like goes through life and has setbacks and overcomes them and is being told that essence of being an American is that you can make it on your own and you deserve what you get because you worked hard for it. And then to get told not only that like you're going to have to give up some things so that other people can succeed, but that you didn't work as hard as somebody else did and you didn't deserve what you got in the same way somebody else would. Like that's an impugning of everything you've done as a human. And that is really hard to deal with. And so if we're going to have those difficult conversations and in the context of a world where every two years you get to vote for the people who make decisions about how resources are distributed in society, 
you're not going to have a scenario in which you can really divorce that from having an active, collective, politicized white identity. It's going to be much easier to push back on the narrative than to do the hard work of thinking about it. I think it's absolutely impossible. You know, the the genies out of the bottle, those metaphors, I don't think we get to say, okay, now you can't use politics as the realm in which you fight your vision of America. Uh, That wouldn't even make any sense. But like, God, the way we decided to do this sucks. I don't I don't know that it's a separation of politics from culture war so much as like it suggests that people on the progressive side need to be accepting of a certain amount of cynicism in political rhetoric from their leaders. Like when Donald Trump was campaigning for president, he said he was against this like crazy climate change regulation, but he was really in favor of clean air and clean water. And like heavily polluting industries did not like blow up at him over that and like embroil us in a weeks long controversy on whether Donald Trump was going to do enough uh, pro-business regulation. And like neither did bankers blow up at him, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, Republican politicians never say, I fundamentally think that average middle class Americans are lazier and less deserving of money than big corporate CEOs. And my tax policy reflects that, you know, like they do their politics and then they also do their interest grouping and they do their agendas and and blah 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 and it's like it, it like it really matters like what the government does but we can get very hung up on wanting politicians to say the things that we believe but like sometimes if you want to win well that was the obama strategy um, to to a very great degree. So I've been reviewing Michael Tesler's book, um, Mo- Post-Racial or Most Racial, which is just this great book on the Obama era and about how everything racialized, um, even as he tried very hard to keep things from racializing. But it, it really goes through a lot of Obama's rhetoric. One, just in a, in a pure numerical way, he talked about race less than any Democratic president, any president actually since FDR, which I thought was fascinating. I had not known that number. My eyes just got super Yeah, big. they did. You didn't see that, but, but that was interesting. <laughs> um, but then he, he, he quotes some Obama statements during the, the presidency and, and there's one and I, I didn't bring it because I wasn't thinking about it for this conversation. But it's something like Obama says, I'm not one of these people who thinks talking about race will make race relations better. I think making the economy better will make race relations better. And Obama was a very – neither. <laughs> um, but Obama managed in his own person to represent a diverse, changing America while speaking publicly about national identity and a, a unified America. And that turned out to be a pretty potent cocktail. And I've all, always thought that one of the problems for Hillary Clinton was she did not have as deep and authentic and natural – connection to the Obama coalition as Obama did. So she ended up being explicit about a lot of things that Obama was implicit about. She ended up really, you know, the whole stronger together approach, a lot of her discussions about things like implicit bias. I mean, she began speaking in a way that Obama, um, Obama would often even speak the opposite way, right? Hillary Clinton was never going to go to African-American communities and and offer the sort of lectures on personal responsibility that Barack Obama did. I, I think there's something in that if you're trying to, to blunt this, so that you're going to see other politicians try to um, imitate from him. 
All right. I never. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we have always a diverse discussion in the Weeds Facebook group. If you come in, uh, tell us what you think about this. Um, my wild ideas to, I guess I proposed ending asylum, which maybe I should. Yeah, I, I have a, another riff on the way I want us to think about asylum that I will have to save for another podcast or perhaps Vox.com, the website. I'll also promote here, um, I just did a interview on the Ezra Klein Show with Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, who um, has a very Obama-like message on all this and it was a, a talk about how you govern a, a diverse majority minority polity um, which I think weeds listeners will be interested in and I also just had Dahlia Lithwick on the great legal analyst uh, to talk about the Supreme Court's consistent undermining of democracy so I think weeds folks will like both of those oh, weeds, love, weeds fans love the undermining of democracy Super know, everyone loves Dahlia Lithwick whichever weeds Facebook fan pointed out that Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador the new president of Mexico has suggested the Matt Iglesias style plan of moving the federal government of Mexico out of Mexico City and into the rest of the country that's where you go this is where most of weeds his ideas Yes, I hear come come from the weeds. Uh, that's a hundred percent true. You don't don't even need to check it. So with that, thanks uh, to Griffin Tanner, our engineer, our producer Bridget Armstrong. The weeds will be back on Friday. Mm-hmm.